Good morning, Providence. Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8 is uh, where we're going to be reading verse number 26. Luke 8, 26. This is a passage that has so much in it that it could be multiple sermons. And um, But I wanted to get through this passage in one sermon just to give you an idea a uh, typical sermon for me, manuscript that is about six pages. My original manuscript on this sermon was 12. And so there was a lot of cutting, a lot of stuff went on the cutting board. But um, just, uh, if I'll give you a little bit of shopkeeping here, when you preach a sermon on a passage, what you need to do is stick with the main thrust of the passage, even though there are so many other things that you can talk about. And that's what I did this week, um, is I brought in too much other stuff and paring it down to what's the main thrust of the passage is extremely important here. This is a tremendous passage. There's so much I wish I could say about it, but that's okay. Um, maybe I'll teach a Sunday school class. Where's Mike? Wherever he went and, uh, and do that. But let's stand together. And I believe that uh, you're going to get a blessing out of uh, this incident in uh, Jesus' life. Verse 26, then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city. By the way, I need to stop. I'm going to say this. I was going to leave out geographical references. It says opposite Galilee. There's a little town called Galilee. Uh, there's a sea called Galilee. What it is, is a region. Remember, the region is, the political region is called Galilee. This is the Decapolis area is what he's talking about. Verse 27, when Jesus had stepped out on land, there was a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. And he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon out in the desert. And another passage says that he was dangerous. People wouldn't pass by because this man was so dangerous. Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside, and they begged him, um, they begged him to let uh, them enter these, so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down uh, the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it to the city and in the country. When the people went out to see what happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from, the de uh, from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus said, sent him away saying, return to your home, declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Lord, I just pray that uh, you will um, illuminate our hearts and minds, help us to, to see 
how great our salvation is and help us also to be aware of the actual spiritual realities going on around us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. So the miracle took place on the far side of the Sea of Galilee. Luke tells us that after stilling the storm, Jesus sailed with the disciples to the country of the Gerizims, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there was a man who met him from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes and had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. The man was naked. He was alone. He exhibited antisocial behavior, having alienated himself from society, right? Most strangely of all, the man made his home among the graves, the tombs outside the city. People in those days would have considered this complete degradation, and rightly so, to live in such a God-forsaken place in what you constantly reminded of the realm of the dead is a sign of sheer lunacy. And that's, that's uh, what this man was. And so the man that met Jesus was nearly in the worst condition that anyone could imagine. He was naked. He was lonely, violent, insane. He was walking among the dead. And yet for all his misery, we can see ourselves in this situation as well. Did you know that? Can't you see yourself here? Um, sin has similar effects on all of us. It exposes our guilt, and so we're naked before the Lord. It alienates us from one another, leaving us lonely and alone. It makes us violent, at least in our attitudes. Right? It does. If not in our actions, spiritually speaking, we walk among the dead. Thus, the madman in the graveyard shows us the wretchedness of our condition before Jesus saves us. The man's degradation was even more deadly because he was possessed by many demons. It's obvious by the way he accosted Jesus. When he saw Jesus, he cried out with a loud, or I'm sorry, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many time it seized him, and he's kept under guard and bound in chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demons in the desert. Now, we see something going on here, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about this in a minute, but we see demonic activity. Demons are very powerful. You see this from this passage. You see it from the Gospels. And I, I want to point out something I think is very fascinating According to Luke and a couple of the other Gospels, it seems like the only reason that Jesus went across the Sea of Galilee was to save this man and cast the demons out, a legion of demons, because he got out, accosted the demons, saved the man, got back in the boat, went. Now, demons are very powerful. We know from the book of Job that they can cause the weather to have something to happen. They cause all kinds of physical illness they do all sorts of things. And in the previous narrative that we looked at last week, I didn't mention this because I wanted to save it for this week, but you will notice something that it says that Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves. Now, I don't want to read too much into this, but it is quite possible, many commentators talked about this, it's quite possible 
that the storm on the Sea of Galilee was actually whipped up by these demons. He rebuked the wind and the sea. And you find that word used a lot when he has um, interaction with with, uh, spiritual beings. Here you see that he commanded the demons to come out of the man. And so the madman was in such a desperate condition that he was demon-possessed, not just by one, but by many. When Jesus asked him his name, what did he say? Legion, because many demons had entered him. Now, the Bible doesn't say exactly how many, but we know that a Roman legion is 6,000, okay? We also know from Mark's account in Mark chapter number five that there were 2,000 pigs on the hillside. So there were at least enough demons that left this man to inhabit uh, 2,000 pigs if it's one apiece. It could have been three apiece for all we know. We don't know, but there were a lot of demons inhabiting and um, um, influencing this man. Demons are fallen angels. Although they were created for the glory of God, they now follow Satan in his rebellion and they torment the children of men. Demonic activity seems to have been especially prevalent during the time of Christ. Uh, Over the years, many uh, men I've read have speculated that Satan threw everything he had into the region knowing that Jesus was there. Uh, Satan had turned all his evil energies against the land of the Savior's promise. And there are two errors that people commonly fall into when it comes to this matter, demons. And I want to talk about this because we don't want to fall into either ditch. The first one is that people commonly uh, will just minimize them or even deny their existence altogether. But most of the time, they just minimize it and say, well, talking about demons, that's a bunch of hocus pocus. Or uh, there's people who give too much credit to demons. Despite what some Christians say, um, there are evil spirits in the world who prey on the weakness of men. Now, demons, they love to be downplayed because it's easier for them to gain control when they're downplayed. The other uh, error is nearly as dangerous, and it's it's to so exaggerate their importance that every evil activity, every spiritual difficulty, every sin is, is just thrown at demons. And there's a problem with that, and that is that you stop taking responsibility for your own actions. There's enough iniquity in each of our hearts that demons really don't need to do much. Isn't that true? Now, when people um, forget the depravity of their own sinful hearts, they fall into this side of the ditch or this ditch, if you want to say that. The Bible provides a balanced view of demonic activity. To begin with, it recognizes the reality of spiritual oppression. Demons love to oppress people. Secondly, there are evil spirits in the world who prey upon human weakness. Despite what some Christians say, not every sin or psychological disorder is the work of a demon. Our own iniquity is explanation enough. And I'm going to pause and say something else. Please listen to what I say and don't say what I don't say. When you look at the demonic affliction in the Gospels, a lot of the descriptors that you see in those Gospels 
would be common psychological uh, analysis from the DSM manual that you have today. Now, what I am not saying is that everybody who has a psychological problem is demon-possessed. What I'm saying is that sometimes psychological problems are, in fact, caused by demons. And we, it's clear as crystal from the Gospels that that is the case. Interesting story. I cut this out, but I got to add it back in. Um, experience of a friend of mine when um, my, my best friend from high school for a while, uh, he, he had been a psychology major. He was in a juvenile psych, psych, psych ward type thing. And he was telling me a story. He said there was a, there was a little girl who was a middle school aged who had what they called multiple personality disorder. And he said, literally, when you walked into her room every morning, you had to ask her, who is your name today? Who, who are you today? And when you would ask her that, her voice would change according to whatever personality. Now, in my book, that's most likely a demonic activity. And so it is more prevalent than some people want to give it um, credit. But demons do exploit spiritual weakness to gain control over certain individuals. They warp their personalities. They twist their actions to evil purpose. This demoniac is the extreme example of what satanic forces can do with a human personality that's come under their complete domination. Unlike the Holy Spirit, uh, who always sets man free, the Holy Spirit always develops a, a, a person's personality and increases a person's self-control and dignity. Satanic forces strive to overpower a man's personality and ultimately to break down his self-control and to rob him of self-respect. That's a critical difference between what the Holy Spirit does and what demons do. The man whom Jesus met was a sad example. Mark tells us that he tried to injure himself. Now, demons were inside trying to dominate, destroy, and destroy a precious person made in the image of God. An evil spirit um, are nothing to trifle with. Given the chance, they're controlling, abusive, and violent. And if they're given the chance, that's exactly what they're going to do. Whether they do it openly or overtly, uh, they do it more secretly and covertly in most um, Western societies. And they do it by corrupting the structures of society. And you can see that in our, our culture today, right? Our culture is becoming corrupt. Whenever you can say, well, I'm not even going to go there. You know what I'm talking about. That is nothing more than demonic influence. Bottom line. But here's what I'm going to say. Demons always oppose the glory of God. Always. There is a cosmic struggle for the heart. There's a cosmic struggle for the soul of every human being. And the man with the legion of demons gives us a shocking picture of what happens when Satan is winning. The man was alienated from society. He was harmful to himself and dangerous to others. He was out of his mind. And, and you ask yourself, when you hear the reasoning of, 
of, of what's going on by um, progressive forms of our society. And you say, that just sounds like lunacy. It sounds crazy. Well, you see a picture of what happens. I'm not saying these people are demon-possessed, okay? But I'm saying demonic activity is alive and real even in the good old U.S. of A. He was harmful to himself, dangerous to others. He was out of his mind. He was living among the dead. And worst of all, though he was aware of the demons inside his head, he was powerless to resist them, and his life had become a living hell. This is what sin does to all of us. Even if our own situation seems less extreme, the Bible tells us that the sinful mind is hostile to God, Romans 8, 7. It describes us as dead in trespasses and sin, Ephesians 2, 1. It says, apart from the saving relationship with Jesus, we are alienated and hostile in mind, Colossians 1, 13. Worst of all, we can't save ourselves. And this man was totally powerless to save himself. On the contrary, we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite of all that is spiritually good. And that's because the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to see them, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. And so this is a very, it's a spiritual battle that's going on. Now this man, if there's anybody that's hopeless, wouldn't you say this is a guy? You, you, you've seen pictures of mugshots of people in prison, and they just, they look like a demon in the flesh. You know what I'm talking about? You've seen them. And you think that if anybody's a hopeless case, it's that guy. Well, this is what we're dealing with here. This is a hopeless case. It was a crazy man who lived in the cemetery, and yet, and yet, this is a beautiful part, he was about to have a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ. This is always what people truly need when troubled by evil spirits. They need the gospel. And so this is the other side of the biblical balance. The evil power of demons... Uh, needs to be respected, but it never needs to be feared. It needs to be recognized, but never um, feared. They have power. They have genuine power. They have far more power than any of us do. Yet we don't ever fear them. We recognize that they're working, but we never fear them. Why? Because fallen angels cannot triumph over the almighty Son of God. Amen? They can't. No power of hell can ever pluck us from this hand, right? And the demons themselves know this. They know it better than any of us do. James says that they, the demons believe and they, they tremble. In other words, they know that there's an omnipotent God, and for this reason, they live in mortal fear. This explains their reaction to Jesus. The legion of demons knew exactly who he was. Luke 8, 28, son of the most high. They know who he is. As fallen angels, they have known 
the second person of the Trinity since the foundation of the world. They knew him. Many of them probably spoke with him. They knew who he was. And as fallen angels, knowing him since the foundation of the world, when they saw Jesus, they discerned his deity, and they knew that he was God the Son incarnate, and they were terrified. Isn't that wonderful? We can smell the fear in these demons by the way they pleaded with Jesus. The word begged, I think, is used three or four times in this narrative. They begged him. They begged him not to torment them. Luke 8.28. They begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. What is the abyss? The abyss is um, the bottomless pit, the place of the dead. Um, the demons know that this is their final doom. They know they're going there. They know that Jesus will defeat them, and they know that they will be cast into a terrible place of everlasting torment. And so they tremble with fear. Some people may not believe in hell, but the demons certainly do. And we should believe in hell too and repent before it's too late for us because it's already too late for them. Now, Jesus didn't send them to the abyss. It was not time yet. Instead, he did something that many people find rather strange. I don't have time to go into it, uh, all of it, but let's just read it. Now, a large herd of pigs was feeding on there on the hillside, and they begged him to let him enter these. I want you to notice what's the next little phrase. So he gave them permission. That's another truth. Demons can't do anything without God's permission. Literally, they can't do anything. God is not the author of evil. Demons are the authors of evil, right? But he does give them permission to act in a way. And the Bible balances this out because then you say, well, how can God give permission to evil? Remember what the Bible says, what they mean for evil, God always means for good. And there's always a good purpose somehow. It's always for our good and for his glory. And we need to remember that and not get um, too wound around the fact that God gives demons uh, permission to do bad things to his people. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs. The herd rushed down the, the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. There are many mysteries in the invisible war between God and Satan and many things that we struggle to understand. But like Jesus, we believe that demons exist. And like the demons, we believe that Jesus exists, right? And that he has the authority to crush every power that opposes his will. And so whenever we are confronted by supernatural evil, when we believe that someone may be tormented by demons, for example, or when it seems that Satan is having his way in, in a family or a community, we cry out for deliverance. We, must, we can never defeat the powers of hell in our own strength, but only by trusting in Jesus. And you know what the Bible says about him? It says, he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. Every single one of his enemies will be under his feet. In the Old Testament, they used to put their foot on the necks of their enemies right before they slaughtered them. Now, 
How would you respond to an incident like this? Well, the way people responded to this extraordinary exorcism was an important miracle itself, or as important as the miracle itself. We see that um, a, a clear contrast between the man in whom the demons were and the, the farmers. Both of them went away and told other people what happened, but only one man did it for the glory of God. Luke begins with the farmers. Look at what it says. With the herdsmen, when they saw what happened, they fled and told they fled. <laughs> I would too if I were not saved and I just saw something like that, right? And told, uh, told it in the city and in the country. When the people went out to see what happened, they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demon had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were, notice the word, seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. Now, it's not every day the lunatics find religion, right? Or the pigs commit mass suicide. So the word spread quickly, and people wanted to come and see what had happened. And soon, Jesus was confronted by an angry mob. The pigs were gone. The people were amazed to find the crazy old man who used to scare people to cemetery, sitting down, listening to Jesus. And it just frightened them so much, they demanded that Jesus leave and depart. They seem to be afraid of losing more of their income or, or something. I don't know what they were afraid of, but they were afraid of something. And if this is why the people were worried, it shows how wrong their priorities were. They cared more about their possessions. They cared more about their lifestyle. They can, can, uh, cared more about the status quo in this present world than they did about the tr priceless treasure of a life transformed by the grace of God. And this is what happens when the Holy Spirit does not illuminate a heart. When your heart is not illuminated, you can see the greatest miracles of Jesus. You can see the greatest transformation. But then you look at how it's going to affect your present circumstances, not thinking about eternity, not thinking about the other world, not thinking about the spiritual realm. And what do you do? You've, your priorities are actually flip-flopped and you value the things of this world more than eternal treasure. And that's exactly what happened. The people of the Gerasenes had the wrong priorities. They were afraid of, uh, of losing um, any more than what they had. They, they had an even deeper fear. They had a fear of Jesus himself and his saving power. Now, I want you to think about something. We always hear these sermons and, and people talking about how there's going to be regret in hell. I don't think there's going to be as much regret as we like to think there is. People in hell still don't want Jesus. People in hell want their sin. People in hell want anything but Jesus Christ. These people did not want Jesus. 
They could see what Jesus had done, and they still rejected him. They were full of fear. This wasn't the reverent fear of the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. This is a, a, a trembling terror of Jesus Christ. They were afraid of Jesus. They were afraid of his power. They were afraid of his authority. They were afraid of his ability to change someone's life in ways that they couldn't even begin to understand. This may seem irrational, yet it happens all the time. They're close enough to see who Jesus is and to see him transform lives. But instead of being open to consider the changes that God wants to make in their own lives, they find it much easier to send Jesus away. I'm still praying for uh, Nick. Nick is a, a young man I got to spend a ton of time with out in Arizona when we were there this winter. And Nick, one of the last times I talked to him about Jesus before they went back home and, and I actually had to come here in January, he told me, he said, I have seen the transformation in some people's heart, uh, lives. And he said, I know they have something different, but I don't have it. And as much as you tell him who Jesus is, it, it, didn't, it didn't compute with him, even though he could see what had happened. And this happens over and over and over. Now, this man's salvation is probably one of the most radical transformations in the Gospels. I can't think of any other transformation in the Gospels as radical as this one. Jesus took a man who was crazy, naked, dangerous, a man walking with the dead, and changed his whole life forever. There's a, a professor named Daryl Bach, and he describes the transformation this way. I'm going to read it. He says, in a complete reversal of the previously possessed man's demeanor, he is now clothed whereas he, before he was naked. He is now seated whereas he had been roaming. He is now associating with others as he sits at Jesus' feet, whereas before he sought solitude. He is now of sound mind, whereas before he had been crying with a loud voice. He is now comfortable in the presence of Jesus, whereas before he wanted nothing to do with him. That's a radical transformation. Now notice all the things that Jesus did for this man. Luke describes him as the man from whom the demons had gone. And so Jesus had delivered him from the demons. His evil spirits were gone. He was no longer oppressed, possessed by fallen angels. Um, Jesus Christ was in control of his life. And wherever Jesus takes control, there is freedom for Satan. Isn't it great? That's Romans 6. Your baptism is symbolic of that. Dead to sin, raised to new life. Satan no longer has a grip on you. You're saved from that realm. The man uh, sitting at the feet of Jesus, um, this, uh, Jesus had calmed a relentless storm that raged inside his soul. And now he's able to sit quietly and listen to careful um, instruction. No longer alone and isolated, he had a saving relationship with Jesus and was coming back into community. He was also fully clothed. 
And this too is spiritually significant. Previously, he went around naked without any sense of modesty or decency. Now he's wearing proper clothes. The orderly way he was behaving was a sign of the discipline that God, Jesus was bringing into his soul. Another way to say this is that he was, he was thinking sensibly. He was in his right mind. That's what Luke says. As Luke puts it, what a wonderful expression of what it means to know Jesus Christ. Until we come to Jesus, <coughs> we are out of our right minds. But once we turn to him in faith, we begin to see everything uh, about, about the way we ought to think in a Bible-based, Christ-centered, God-glorifying way. Isn't that wonderful? In a word, um, uh, the herdsman used to describe what, the, um, what had happened to the man. He was healed. He was healed, and that's what happens to us. This is a marvelous picture of of what happens to us in salvation. We leave the sinful power of Satan. We come under the control of Jesus. We enter into a wonderful new personal relationship with him, also with his people in the community of the church. And now we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're able to sit and listen to what he teaches us. We have a whole new way of thinking about things because the word of God has transformed our minds. I remember, I, just like it was yesterday, I remember the transformation in my mind the day I was saved. Third Sunday in July, 2000, or I'm sorry, 1986 is when it was. I don't know what date that was, but it was the third Sunday, I can tell you that. And I remember this. For weeks before that, all I could think about was what I could get out of this world. Making my plans. I just graduated from high school. I was ready to go off to pre-med and then on to medical school. And man, I was looking forward to it. I got saved and literally that day, that very day, my thinking is like a light switch flipped. Now, it wasn't perfect in my thinking. I'm still not there, obviously. But I don't don't agree with that. <laughs> What's wrong with you people? But immediately my thinking changed, and that happened to all of us, didn't it? Right? Whole new way of thinking, because the Word of God has transformed our mind. And this is the experience of every person who has salvation. J.C. Ryle said it like this. He said, never is a man in his right mind until he's converted or in his right place till he sits by faith at the feet of Jesus, or rightly clothed till he puts on the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he goes on to say that real conversion is nothing else but the miraculous release of a captive, the miraculous restoration of a man to his right mind, the miraculous deliverance of the soul from the devil. And so as we come to know Jesus more and more and more, we experience his healing, healing from sin, healing from Satan, healing from loneliness, healing from indecency, healing from the wrong ways of thinking, and even healing from the power of death. How wonderful it is that we are transformed and saved. Considering all the things that Jesus did for him, it's not surprising that he responded very differently from everyone else that was there. Instead of sending Jesus away, he wanted to follow Jesus, didn't he? 
the man from whom the, Jesus, the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. Don't you want to be with Jesus? He was ready to follow Jesus anywhere. But you know what? God, I don't understand this, but God had a very different plan for his life. Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. That was his plan. And he followed it. The Bible says he went. And that's exactly what he did. And this is our first calling most of the time. After we come to Jesus Christ, we don't go off on some wild adventure, but we go back home and share the good news about Jesus Christ with our family and our friends. Now, anyone who's come to Jesus in faith has a wonderful story to tell. I love telling my salvation story. I love sitting in those rooms back there doing new member interviews and hearing people's salvation testimony. I love baptismal services when I get to hear salvational, salvation testimonies. And my guess is that every elder would say the exact same thing. That's their favorite part of our ministry. That's my favorite part. You think preaching's my favorite part. I'll give you a little hint. I love studying. Writing sermons is not fun. I love listening to people's testimonies, though. The details are always a little bit different, but the story is still the same. God forgave all our sins, even the dark secret misdeeds that no one else knows about, and we are almost afraid to admit ourselves. And this he has done through the cross where Jesus died for our sins and in an empty tomb where Jesus rose again to give us eternal life. God has covered us with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Man, oh man, oh man, am I thankful for that. Because the longer I live, the more I see what, how nasty my heart is, even now being saved, what, something, almost 40 years, being saved for a really long time. How's that? And I know what my heart's like. And, I, and the only thing that gives me comfort about eternity is when I stand before the Lord, he's going to see the righteous deeds of Christ clothed on me. Amen. We're no longer naked in our guilt. He's put us in a right mind so that we know who we really are. But more importantly, we know who God really is. He has settled us down to listen to his word. He has given us a saving relationship with his son. And this is how much Jesus has done for us. And even if we sometimes forget, if this is what Jesus has done for us, then we need to tell people about it so he can do the same thing for them. Are you telling people about Jesus? He left you in this world. One of the primary reasons was to tell people about him. Go into the world, right? Teach them. Tell the good news. That's what we're here for. And when we do that, what we're doing is glorifying God. Well, I got to stop. I've gone way too long. Lord, I thank you for the, the saving power of Jesus Christ. I thank you for the transformation that is a testimony of everyone who's truly in Jesus Christ. 
We thank you, Lord, that, that even though uh, demons and evil spirits are extremely powerful, far more powerful than we are, we're pitiful in compared to them. The fact of the matter is that since we have Jesus, he's far more powerful than they are. I pray that we will not minimize the work of demons in our society and even in um, our relationships in our midst, in our hearts. But at the same time, Lord, we won't uh, go overboard and blame everything on them. And I pray more than anything else that we will live our lives to the glory of the Jesus Christ who saved us. In his name we pray. Amen.